You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Let's now open our Bibles to the scripture reading this morning. We're going to read from Isaiah chapter 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. And one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I. Send me. He said, Go and tell this people, Be ever hearing, but never understanding. Be ever seeing, but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people calloused. Make their ears dull and close their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. And I said, For how long, O Lord? And he answered, Until the cities lie ruined and without inhabitant, until the houses are left deserted and the fields ruined and ravaged, until the Lord has sent everyone away and the land is utterly forsaken. And though a tenth remains in the land, it will again be laid waste. But as the terebinth and oak-leaved stumps when they are cut down, so the holy seed will be the stump in the land. The text this morning is Mark 4, verses 1 to 20. Again, Jesus began to teach by the lake. The crowd that gathered around him was so large that he got into a boat and sat in it out on the lake, while all the people were along the shore at the water's edge. He taught them many things by parables, and in his teaching said, Listen. A farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns which grew up and choked the plants so that they did not bear grain. Still other seed fell on good soil. It came up, grew, and produced a crop, multiplying thirty, sixty, or even a hundred times. And Jesus said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. When he was alone, the twelve and the others around him asked him about the parables. He told them, The secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you. But to those on the outside, everything is said in parables, so that they may be ever seeing but never perceiving and ever hearing, but never understanding, 
Otherwise they might turn and be forgiven. And Jesus said to them, Don't you understand this parable? How then will you understand any parable? The farmer sows the word. Some people are like seed along the path where the word is sown. As soon as they hear it, Satan comes and takes away the word that was sown in them. Others, like seed sown on rocky places, hear the word and at once receive it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only for a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. Still others, like seed sown among thorns, hear the word. But the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desires for other things come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. Others, like seed sown on good soil, hear the word, accept it, and produce a crop thirty, sixty, or even a hundred times what was sown. Beloved congregation, Christ Jesus. This morning we continue with our series on the book of Mark and we come to a well-known parable. In fact, this is the moment in Christ's ministry where He begins to use parables quite extensively in His teaching and preaching. And this parable that we're looking at this morning is one of the most familiar. You know the cliché about familiarity. That familiarity breeds contempt. We become so familiar with something that we turn off our ears, we turn off our minds, and maybe we even look down our noses at it. However, in this case, the parable itself demands a different response, as we shall see. There will be those in the congregation this morning who are hearing this parable and its explanation for the very first time. And here we think especially of the younger brothers and sisters, children. But there will be others who have heard it before, perhaps even many times. And maybe you think you know what it's about. You know what it means. Maybe you're right. Maybe you're wrong. Whatever the case may be, God's Word calls you to listen with new ears, to see with new eyes, and to freshly listen again to your Savior, your chief prophet and teacher, Jesus Christ. We need to be reminded again of truths that matter for our eternal well-being. And so I preach to you this morning about the parable of the sower. And we'll see that it is a call to hear rightly. Well, first of all, we need to consider the context in which this parable comes to us. Mark gives us that context in the first three verses. He tells us that the Lord Jesus began to teach by the lake. And this hooks back into the preceding passage where we saw Christ, the rabbi, teaching in the house. And here he's continuing his teaching, this time by the Sea of Galilee. And the people whom he's teaching are also an important part of the setting. We find that it was a crowd. But what kind of crowd? Who were these people gathered around Jesus by the Sea of Galilee? They were not just any people in the Roman Empire. In fact, they were people a lot like us. 
They were like us in that they were God's covenant people. The males among them had received the sign and seal of God's covenant in circumcision, just like we have received it in baptism. They were those to whom God's Word had come. They were those who had heard both wonderful promises and terrible warnings. The Lord Jesus was not addressing heathens who knew nothing about the Bible, who knew nothing about the the God revealed in the Bible, Yahweh. These were mostly, if not entirely, Jewish men, women, and children. And as we're going to see as we proceed through this passage, this is a crucially important point. So it was a Jewish crowd, and a very large one at that. It was so large, in fact, that Christ was crowded off the seashore and He had to sit in a boat while He was teaching. You may remember, looking back to chapter 3, verse 9, that the Lord Jesus kept a boat ready just in case something like this would would happen. Verse 2 of chapter 4 tells us that He taught them many things in parables. Now, parables were not unknown to the people of God. We find them in the Old Testament, for instance. Think only of the parable that the prophet Nathan told King David after the Bathsheba incident. Many of the Proverbs of Solomon and others were also regarded as being parables. So it wasn't necessarily unusual for a Jewish teacher to use this method of teaching. But what we find next about how he began, that is unusual. He said, listen. Now remember again to whom he was speaking. Jews. The first Jewish confession of faith is found in Deuteronomy 6 verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which was the Bible used by many people in the days of Jesus, in the Greek translation, the exact same word is used as what Jesus uses here in Mark. Listen. And when a Jewish audience heard that word from a rabbi, they expected to hear right afterwards, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. But that's not what they hear. Instead, they hear a farmer went out to sow his seed. What? That's not how it goes. Doesn't this rabbi know his Bible? Well, as it turns out, he knows it very well. And what he does here with this surprise actually underscores his broader objective, what he's trying to accomplish that objective was to prophetically overturn the apple cart of people's expectations about the coming of the kingdom. And so when we look at this parable, we ought to remember its distinctly covenantal context. We also need to remember that it comes to us at a certain point in Jesus' ministry. This is a time when the animosity of the Jewish leaders towards him is beginning to boil over and threatening to destroy him. He didn't tell this parable between his resurrection and his ascension. He could have done that, but 
it wouldn't have fit. It belongs here at this point in his life. Here at his descent into suffering. Here at this moment when he's on his way to the cross. And keeping those things in mind, we come to the parable itself in verses 3 to 9. Simple story of a farmer doing his daily work, going out to sow seed, expecting and hoping to have a harvest. The farmer scattered the seed everywhere. Path, rocky places, among thorns, and then also on good soil. And those of us who are familiar with farming might wonder about the competency of this farmer. Because a good farmer in our day would never sow his seed all over the place. But in that area, in that age, that's exactly what was often done. Though we now know that it didn't always happen like that, the farmer would oftentimes first sow his seed and then come along later and then plow it under. And that's, of course, different from farming practices in our own country where plowing usually comes first, preparing the soil, and then sowing. And the result of the practice in Jesus' day was that initially the the seed would be sown indiscriminately all over the place. One of the places was the path running across the field. People would take shortcuts, walk across fields, and the soil would be compacted, and a nice path would eventually form. And eventually that path would be plowed. But for now, the seed falls there. And on that nice flat surface, the seeds are readily visible. And the birds who are flying in the sky, they look down and they see the seed there, and they come and they snatch it away and eat it. And then there are other places that are rocky, not having a lot of soil depth. Some of the seed falls there, grows for a little while, but it doesn't survive without the depth of soil. It can't live without water to sustain it and support it. And there were no pesticides in the time of Jesus in Palestine. So there would often be thorns in certain parts of the field. And eventually they too would be plowed under. But for now, some of the seed falls there. Predictably, the seed grows, but is quickly choked out by the thorns and no grain was produced. And there is other seed which finds deep, rich, dark soil. And there the seed falls, takes root, grows, and produces abundantly. If you were to look at the heads on those stalks of grain, you would see that some of them have 30 grains, some have 60, and some have 100. This would be what you would normally expect from seed falling on good soil. Now before we go further, I want you to take note of what is similar and what is different in each instance. What's the same each time? Well, it's the seed, isn't it? The seed never changes. It's always the same kind of seed. But what's different each time? It's the soil and the context in which it's found. Now in verse 9, the Lord Jesus offers a summary of the parable with some mysterious words, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. What are they 
and us supposed to hear? What is this about? Well, at this point, all we can say is that this parable has something to do with hearing. Only later do we get the full explanation of what Jesus means with these words. Some time after these words were spoken, Christ was alone with the twelve and some other disciples who were close to Him, and they asked about it. And from the fact that they asked, obviously they didn't understand or they were unsure. And the first thing He does is explain the key to understanding this parable and all parables. He says that it has to do with the secret or the mystery of the kingdom of God. That secret or mystery has been given to those who eagerly sit at Jesus' feet as His disciples or students. It comes, the the secret or mystery comes to those who are enrolled in Jesus' school of discipleship. But then what is that secret, that mystery that comes to them? Well, looking back to the Old Testament, these secrets and mysteries were those things that could only come through God's revelation. And here, in Mark, the mystery involves the kingdom of God and the way that it turns everything upside down. The kingdom of God is completely the opposite of what we might expect. The mystery of the kingdom is that it comes in paradoxes in things that seem to be totally absurd and inconsistent, at least when considered from an earthly, worldly, this fleshly point of view. Those who are enrolled in Jesus' school of discipleship, those who humbly submit to His teaching, they receive these apparent absurdities, these paradoxes in faith. For instance, they say, I don't understand how it can be that the kingdom of God comes through suffering and trials. I don't understand it. But because my Lord Jesus tells me that it is so, I believe it. I believe Him. Those on the outside are those who either refuse to hear the teaching of Christ or when they do hear it, they mock it or they ignore it. The outsiders do not sit properly in the school of the Lord Jesus. And if they happen to be in the classroom for some reason, they're not listening with humility and they're not interested in learning from Him. According to verse 11, these are the ones to whom the parables are directed. Why, though? Well, then comes the quote from Isaiah 6. That they may see and see and never perceive. That they may hear and hear and never understand. Otherwise, they would turn and be forgiven. These are difficult words. And again, we can't understand everything about this. There is there is mystery here. To those whose hearts are hard, Jesus says that the parables will make their hearts harder. Jesus says that the parables are an instrument of God's judgment on His covenant people who will not submit to the teaching of Christ. This is where a lot of people run into problems with this text. Because sometimes we hear that parables 
are a good example of effective communication. If you want to reach your audience and grab their attention, you need to have good illustrations. And the Lord Jesus gives great illustrations. He gives the best. However, in His own words, the parables were not given for that purpose. The first and primary purpose of the parables was as an instrument of God's judgment to make hard hearts even harder. And this is where the context becomes important again. These parables were first spoken to the Jews who lived during the time of Christ. Their hearts were hardened. But that served the redemptive purposes of God. With hearts hardened, they didn't think twice about crying out, crucify Him, crucify Him. With hearts hardened, they didn't think twice about taking a murderer back into their community instead of releasing Jesus, the perfectly innocent Lamb of God. You see, loved ones, as part of God's perfect plan, the hardening caused by the parables served for our salvation. The parables prepared the cross where Christ's blood was shed for the forgiveness of your sins. The parables prepared the tomb where Jesus was laid after He died for you. It all fits together for you and for your salvation. And so while there is judgment for some, there is good news for believers in this passage. And that good news is also found in verse 13. Then Jesus said to them, don't you understand this parable? How then will you understand any parable? You know, I've discovered that there are people who love to tell riddles. They love to stump others and, and see them squirm in their seats as they try to, to figure it all out. But the Lord Jesus was not out to stump His disciples. They misunderstand and they just don't get it. Yes, they humbly submit to His teaching. They sit at His feet, but the answer just doesn't come to them. Now notice what He does. He doesn't throw them away because of their dullness of mind. He doesn't reject them because they don't get it. He doesn't go out and say, forget these guys. I need to find brighter disciples who can understand my parables without me having to give them an explanation. He doesn't do that. Instead, He gives them a gentle admonition and then He goes on and He explains it for them. Now perhaps we too have a hard time understanding the mystery of the kingdom of God. For instance, maybe we, we just can't see at this moment how the way down is the way up. Right now, we can't understand how taking up our cross daily is the way to glory. Christ didn't reject His disciples because they couldn't get it. He won't reject you either. Like His Father in heaven, He is patient with all His disciples including us. Yet the call remains for us to be disciples, to be humble students in His school. 
If we say, Lord, I don't understand it, but I want to understand it, please teach me. That's a prayer He will hear. And He will be patient with us as He continues to teach us with His Word and Spirit. Brothers and sisters, see the love and grace of your Savior here in this passage. Then in verse 14, he comes back to the parable of the sower and he gives the explanation. First he says, the farmer sows the word. Who is this farmer? Well, Jesus doesn't directly tell us, which is interesting. In the Old Testament, God was often the one who was sowing the seed among Israel. There are a number of passages from the prophets where he is described in those very terms. In this immediate context, we can assume that it is Jesus Himself who is sowing the Word. Elsewhere in the Bible, in 1 Corinthians 3, for instance, we find that Paul also sowed the seed. And so, it is those who spread the Word. And while that means, first and foremost, the ministers of the Gospel, it includes all of us. We all have a calling to spread the Word through witnessing. And that brings us to the next question. What is the Word here? Well, naturally, it's what Jesus Himself has been proclaiming. The good news that the kingdom of God has come near in Christ and His work. It's the Gospel that Jesus Christ has come for salvation. This is the message that Christ spread indiscriminately. This is the message that Paul and the other apostles preached everywhere. It's also the message that we're called to spread everywhere and to everyone we can. And so let me ask you, do you regularly and eagerly pray for opportunities and open doors to speak about Christ and to speak about your faith in Him? If not, today is the time to start. And if you do pray for those opportunities to witness, you pray for God to help you to be able to speak about Christ at your workplace or where you study or wherever else you encounter unbelievers. You pray that. Do you also ask God to give you the wisdom and courage to see the open doors and to go through them to speak when you have the chance? Loved ones, the Gospel message that we've been given is such Good news. It's so wonderful. And the judgment hanging over unbelievers is such bad news. It's so terrible. How can we not ask God to help us in this? The gospel message, the good news, has to be spread far and wide. And that begins with you in the pew. I encourage you to think about it. Pray about it. Do it. Now we come to the explanation of what happens with the seed. It says that some people are like the seed and then follows the particular situation. Now we might misunderstand that to mean that the people are like the seed. That the seed stands for people. But actually, it's Christ saying some people are like this situation where the seed falls on this or that kind of soil. 
After all, Christ himself already said what the seed is, that the seed is the word. Now, keeping that in mind, some people are like the seed sown along the path. As soon as they hear it, and do note that they do hear it, it comes into their ears. As soon as they hear it, Satan comes and takes it away. There are no roots put down. Nothing happens. These kinds of people are the path. They are hard, unfruitful soil. Nothing happens when the gospel is spread among them and they hear it. Again, note that they hear it. And note that when this parable was first told, it was told among God's covenant people. And there are those also today who have received the sign and seal of God's covenant. And yet, they remain dead in sin. Lost in darkness. They hear the word. But nothing happens. Nothing changes. Now I just want to make something very clear. The Lord Jesus did not give us this parable so that we can look around the church and figure out who fits where. This is not a diagnostic tool for you to apply to the rest of the congregation. Brothers and sisters, if you're tempted to do that, that's the deceitfulness of your heart speaking. That's snake think, telling you to look to others instead of yourself. Loved ones, the Lord Jesus gave us this parable, first of all, so that you would take a hard look in the mirror at yourself and make sure that you're not this kind of soil. Make sure that you're not this barren, hard, unfruitful path. And then there are the rocky places. They are those who hear the Word and right away become very enthusiastic they run on emotions. Gives them good feelings. But good feelings can only get you so far. A faith based on how you feel will not persevere. Will not go for the long haul. You'll have no root and you'll, so you'll only be around on a temporary basis. The Lord Jesus says that when trouble or persecution comes because of the Word, then these quickly fall away. Here too, think about that for yourself. I look around me here this morning and I see a church building packed full of people. Wonderful. Would we still come to church and pack this building the way we do Sunday after Sunday if we knew that there were some kind of secret police out in the parking lot taking down our license plate numbers, would you still be here? Would you still be here each Sunday if you knew that your life, your property, your family was threatened because of your faith? Would you? Think about that. Loved ones, take care that you are not the rocky place where the seed cannot make deep roots that endure hard times and persecution. The Lord Jesus then explains about the seed sown among the thorns. These people too, they hear the Word. It goes into their ears and for a time they grow. But then they get choked. And what are the things that choke them? 
What is Christ warning us about here? Well, first of all, He speaks about the worries of this life. If you want to know what He means by that, go to the last verses of Matthew 6, the Sermon on the Mount. He says there not to worry about your life. The worries of this life, what you will eat, what you will drink, what you will wear. Instead, he says, trust your Father to provide you with all these things. The worries of this life are just average, everyday things that everybody needs. Anxiety about those things can indeed choke out the seed and make it unfruitful. Second, he speaks about the deceitfulness of wealth. We need to pay careful attention to that phrase. How is wealth deceitful? What are the lies that wealth often tells us? Well, that we're self-sufficient, that we have it made for ourselves, Wealth lies and tells us that we're, we're pretty decent, that we've got good reason to be proud of ourselves. Wealth also deceives us by telling us that if we only have a little bit more, then we'll be truly happy. Then we'll be content. Beloved, contentedness is not found in addition but in subtraction. Contentedness is not found in addition, but in subtraction. Contentedness doesn't come from getting more things, adding more things, but from taking away, from subtracting from our evil desires for more things. Wealth deceives us into thinking it's the other way around. Wealth tells us that we will be happy if we are rich and we can have everything at our disposal. Yet 1 Timothy 6 verse 10 tells us that those who want to be rich may very well pierce themselves with many sorrows. Wealth lies to us and tells us that we will be safe and we will be secure with riches. We'll have no more worries when we have riches. But the Bible teaches us the truth. It tells us that wealth is like honey. It's like honey. It's sweet to the taste. But honey also attracts bees and wasps. In the same way, the sweetness of prosperity invites the devil and temptation into our lives. In this and So many other ways, the deceitfulness of wealth can choke out the seed and make it unfruitful. And so, beware of the lies of prosperity. And finally, there is the catch-all thing that will choke out the seed, desires for other things. In that category, we can mention all sorts of temptations. Rather than give a list, we can see this along the same lines as the Tenth Commandment wanting and longing for all sorts of things instead of the one thing that truly matters. Instead of the one person who truly matters. Christ Himself and the good news He preached. 
could summarize this with a question. What is the one driving passion of your life? What or who do you desire above everything else? If the answer is something else besides God, His glory, His gospel in Christ, then desires for other things are choking out the seed in your life. Someone once said, what we hunger for most, we worship. That's true. Beware of desires for other things that could choke out the Word in your life. And then there's the seed, sown on good soil. Like all the others, those two hear the Word and they accept it. The Word finds deep, dark, rich soil in their hearts and it produces a crop, it produces fruit. Some produce more than others, but they all produce. And we don't know why some produce more than others, and Jesus doesn't say. But what's most important is that they are good soil. They have heard the Word rightly in the way intended by God. And so the message of this parable is, be the good soil. And you may think that if you've been one kind of soil in the past or present, that you cannot become the good soil. Wrong. That would be stretching the parable in a fatalistic way to say something that it doesn't say. Your soil type is is not like your blood type. You You can't change your blood type. But you can change your soil type. Christ Himself teaches His disciples to be the good soil, to hear with a humble heart what He has to say and follow Him. He calls you to be the good soil that hears the Word, accepts it in faith, and then goes forth and bears fruit. And what does that good soil look like? What does a good hearer of the Word look like? Well, we can say that it involves three things. Drawing from the parable, we can say that a good hearer always welcomes the Word immediately so that Satan cannot snatch it away. Even if we've heard it before hundreds or maybe even thousands of times, the good news is always music to our ears that we welcome right away. The good hearer always welcomes it. The second thing, Deeply, so that when persecution comes, faith does not wither and die. There's the third thing. The good hearer welcomes it exclusively so that nothing else can compare to the all-surpassing worth of knowing Christ and His Gospel. Immediately, deeply, exclusively. Those are the ways to be the good soil that bears fruit to the glory of God. We began by noting the cliché about familiarity breeding contempt. I said that the parable itself demands the opposite response. And it does. Rather than hearing the word with contempt, sneering at it, we're called to warmly welcome it each time we hear it. 
Christ calls us, each and every one, young and old, adults and children, doesn't matter where we are in our lives, Christ calls all of us to be the good soil, to be good hearers of His Word. Let's not have this parable stand in judgment over us. Let's now pray. Father in heaven, we acknowledge you as the one who has sown your word among us again this morning. And we thank you for that word. And we pray that we would all be the good soil that welcomes the word immediately, deeply, and exclusively. Father, save us from the desires for other things. We pray for you to save us from the deceitfulness of wealth and the worries of this life. Lord God, please have mercy on us and help us when we're faced with persecutions or trials of one sort or another. We pray that the seed sown in us would persevere by your invincible grace and power. Help us also to bear the fruit of longing to see that seed sown further afield. Please use us in this capacity. Father, please give us opportunities to witness to our Savior in our everyday life with our co-workers, our friends, our neighbors, people we study with, whomever it may be. Father, when those opportunities come, we ask You to help us to have courage and wisdom to say the right things. Help us with Your Spirit to be winsome so that Your name is always praised because of us. We pray that You would help us in all our weakness and give us more grace so that we would understand the mystery of Your kingdom. Please hear us in Christ our Lord. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.